I've, uh, I've coached my small group the past couple weeks to be heckling me during the service, so I'd, I'd welcome you guys to join in as well if I get off topic or lose my train of thought. Seriously, just start heckling me. It'll help. And uh, laugh and engage. Um, I've been wondering back there, sitting in the back, wondering why it is I'm so nervous, why we get so nervous in front of each other, and I think it comes down for me to the fact that I have just a tremendous respect for you guys as a church. Uh, my wife and I came here about a year ago, and we've experienced a church that sincerely and authentically loves God and goes after His heart in a way that we've never seen anywhere else. Um, it's something that just blows our minds, and it's meant the world to us to be a part of your community. Y'all have welcomed us in, and we can't thank you enough. I've spent over uh, 65 hours preparing for this sermon, which is not a good idea. It shows my lack of faith. It shows my trust in my own imagination, and it makes me look like I don't know what I'm doing, because I really don't. This is uh, my first time preaching to adults. I've uh, preached a lot to kids, but um, seriously, thank you guys for this opportunity. Thank you, David. This is a tremendous uh, gift that very few people get to experience. Um, David's charged me with talking about the journey, which for a young guy, that seems kind of ridiculous, but needless to say, we're all on a journey, right? We're all on a journey somewhere to something, and we've been talking about in this Advent season the fact that we wait on God, right? That we put aside our agendas, we put aside our timing, and we wait on God. And David last week introduced the, the topic of accepting, that God puts a call on our lives, and we have to accept it, we have to respond to it, and there's a responsibility there that takes a lifetime to learn. Um, you could even say that just the journey in and of itself is just a cycle, constantly repeating of this, waiting and accepting, waiting and accepting. It's a day in, it's a day out. It's not like you get it together. I remember growing up, my dad would see the angst in my own heart, and he would see how I just so badly wanted to be there. I don't know where that was, but I just wanted to be wherever that was. And just say, Eric, enjoy the journey. Just enjoy each day. Enjoy where you are. It's okay to be where you are. Just enjoy this journey. So I don't know what comes to mind for you guys, but so many things come to mind for me in terms of the journey. I think about Lord of the Rings. I think about these epic movies, you know, that capture, like, the depth of life. They, I mean, I wish I was Gandalf because it would be so cool to have... Anyway, but we, Lord of the Rings and, like, a river runs through it. Anybody seen that movie? I mean, it just blows me away, the story. We're all captured deeply by this thing that runs throughout these stories. It reminds me of this annual trip I would take with some buddies. We would go mountaineering out in the Cascade Mountains in Washington State, and we would just be going after this mountain. And a lot of people ask, why in the world do you go climbing? That seems so dumb. Go get frozen and cold in the snow and risk your life. And I'm like, that is life. The fullness of life is in pushing yourself to the furthest possible limit and going after something so big and so grand that you can't have it otherwise. So... For me, when I think of journey, I'm, I'm caught up there. I'm caught up in the mountains in the North Cascades. But what we see when we look at the journey is that it's, it's deep, right? It's meaningful. It's, it, it connects with us on such a, a deep level. And it is, in fact, the mission of this church, right? I mean, we come here to this church, the mission being to connect with the heart of Marietta. The heart of Marietta. That is why we're here, right? We're, we're here to connect with the heart of God and with the heart of each other and to share our hearts with the world. So this journey that we're on is so much about the heart, and I'm preaching to the choir, I'm preaching to the people that I'm following, 
you guys are the ones I want to model my life after. Seriously, I'm not just saying that to, to please you. The way that y'all live, the way that y'all do church is the way that I want to live. It's the way I want to be. But this heart issue, this heart issue occurs so often in the Bible, over 750 times just the word heart is mentioned. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, that's a lot of heart in the Bible. It's all over the place. We see that it's central to the Word. It's central to our relationship with Him. There's some key verses just to illustrate this in Proverbs. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. It says, As the water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. I mean, that, that in and of itself could be something you could meditate on forever. Your life is reflected by your heart. The way you live is an outpouring of your heart. We sit in church and we get caught up with sometimes with some other things. We have to turn back and realize it's about our heart. And we have to constantly just wake up. I have to constantly wake up and draw the scales off my heart and off my mind and say, no, it's about the heart. It's about the heart. And Jesus would, would echo these things and He would say, these people honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. So it's, it's clear in Scripture that the heart is such a central issue, as you guys know. We see this in others. You know, what's the testimony of your life? What's the testimony of the people's lives around you? If it's true that it's an overflow of their heart, then that means that the way they live their life, what it looks like, that shows their heart. Are they living to amass all kinds of junk and collect it and be this thing? It shows that their heart is obsessed with materialism of this world. Or are they totally living for other people? Or are they living for something they can't define? You know, the overflow of the heart from which the mouth speaks, as it says in Proverbs. But the problem, as we all know, the problem that we all struggle with is that our heart is also fickle. It's not, it doesn't stay attached to, to the places we want it to, you know? We wake up some days and it goes after something else and it trusts anything but the thing that it should trust. It reminds me of a, of a story um, in my own life when back in uh, college, Liz and I, my wife, had been dating for, we dated seven years before we got married. And in college, I dreamt of being married to her and us having children. And I, I remember this one image when I was supposed to be studying in class and listening to the lecture. I would sit there and I'd dream about coming home after a hard, day hard day's work and see my wife. And she comes out the door with our children, with our son, and his little smiling, giggling face comes running down towards me, and I throw my arms open, and I capture him, and I just squeeze the life out of him for my love to see him. I remember thinking this. And then reality set in, and we had a kid. And <laughs> that's not the funny part. Hang on. And then reality set in, and we had a kid, Jacob, and this kid's nuts. He's, a, he's like just a... He's on nonstop, and so I come home, and I remember right when he first could start to walk, Liz let him out the door, and I'm, I'm like, this is the day, this is the day my dreams are fulfilled, and he just starts doing the waddle down the driveway, and he, he's, I'm like, come to me, Jacob, and he's just like, ah. and he just goes down the driveway right past me, <laughs> headed for the street, right, and I'm like, seriously, God, this is my greatest dream, my greatest desire, to see my son in my arms, and it's like he's going, he thinks it's a big chocolate eclair or something. I don't know. But this, this thing we have of just, we get obsessed with other things. Our heart is fickle and it runs after other things. But, and Liz and I watch him run down the street and we just start crying out, Jacob, now you need to stop. Jacob, you need to obey us. Jacob, 
Jacob, Jacob! And he doesn't turn. He just keeps going. And sometimes he turns and we, we get that connection. We get that, that call that God has on all of us. You know? Um, this, is, uh, this ties in really nicely with what David talked about last week, you know, in the, in the story of Mary and Joseph and the dream that, Jake, that he had, you know, when uh, the, the angel came to him and he said, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to stay there until, until Herod, Herod uh, comes. He's trying to take the child's life. And then you can return back. And Mary and Joseph, they get up and they go immediately. They immediately respond. And they're on this journey into Egypt. Um, and it's out of Egypt that, uh, that he has called us. You see, you see the, the, the connection that Mary and Joseph's hearts make. I mean, their, their hearts were cultivated so richly in such a way that they could respond like that, Right? You see it in, uh, in other places. You see it in the way that Matthew frames the beginning of his gospel. He presents it in such a way that he, he lists this genealogy of all these people. And for a, a largely patriarchal, patri, you know what I'm saying, society, to, to list anything but men and men of renown is kind of out there, right? But Matthew goes in and he lists five women, among them a prostitute. These Gentiles, these people that are everyday people. He lists people in this presentation of this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, that are of questionable character. People who were used by God, right? And then Matthew continues in with like he's, like he's sliding a blade up into the heart of the Jewish audience that's listening to this. And he says, now listen, the first people that come to worship this guy are going to be shepherds and magi. Not my people, not the Jewish people. It's going to be dirty, smelly shepherds in the country, and it's going to be weird astrologer guys from Mesopotamia or wherever it is. And they're going to be the first ones to come. And Matthew's going after a heart issue there with his Jewish audience. He's saying, listen, you guys get it wrong, and I want to show you the heart issue. You're looking at all the wrong things. You're not looking at the heart. You're not looking at what God looks at. We see this also in the fact that um, Mary and Joseph, they, in their lives, because they were so richly cultivated in this, you know, this love for God, that they were able to do what He asked. And like David mentioned last week, it fulfilled a prophecy. I mean, that's a big deal. For us to live lives that fulfill something that God wants, that's not an everyday thing. Lots of people don't do that. To have a heart that's richly cultivated towards Him provides that opportunity. Right, And so they fulfilled a prophecy, and it was a prophecy from Hosea. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. And like Liz and I calling to Jacob to come back, come back. Sometimes he doesn't turn, but sometimes he sees it. In Hosea's testimony, again and again and again, we see this image of our hearts. In Hosea's own testimony, the, the prophet who said, out of Egypt I called my son. He actually says a, a line before it. It's the second half of the verses out of Egypt I called my son. The, the, the sentence before it is, when Israel was a child, I loved him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So God gives us this picture through Hosea's life of a father's love for a son. I don't know about y'all, but I know that many of us struggle with the love that our fathers gave us. I had a wonderful father who gave me a wonderful picture of this, but some of you didn't get that picture. 
but you still feel it, don't you, when you see a father who is all about his family, who's faithful and righteous and good and pure, and he's loving the life out of his kids. You just you feel that connection, that connection between a father and a son. And then Hosea, take Hosea as well. This guy was a real dude. He wasn't a flannel board character. He wasn't Sunday school man. He, I, did y'all not do flannel board in the pres- whatever church? I did flannel board. Like little dudes hung up on the flannel. Anyway. And I thought that was the whole thing of Scripture, but it's not. Flannel board characters are not it. This guy was real. Hosea was a real man who had real dreams and experiences. He had dreams of his, of his own. And God came into his life and said, Hosea, hey, I want your life to be a living testimony of how faithful I am, of how much I love my people. I want your life to be so about me that I want you to go do what? Take a wife? Yeah, take a, take a wife of whoredom? I want you to go marry a whore. We don't talk about that in church, right? God uses anybody that's willing to do what He asks. He, it's regardless of age or sex or status or experience. Or He used a 12-year-old girl to bring about the Savior of the world. He uses anyone whose heart is soft and willing to listen. And so Hosea says yes, just like Mary said yes. Hosea responds and he goes. And he takes a wife of whoredom and continues on. God says, I want you to name these kids after things that continue to reflect how faithful I am and how faithless and fickle you guys' hearts are. And God gives us all these images in Hosea. He gives us an image of a faithless wife, of an indifferent mother, of an illegitimate child. He has all these little illustrations that, that Hosea speaks to the people to explain what? Not our behavior, not the way we act, but our hearts. It's our hearts that lose the connection to God that we need. But this going, going back to that first line, when Israel was a child, I loved him. You know, this, this can't be stressed enough how much he loves us, like a son loves a father like a father loves his son. Like when I come home, I just want to squeeze the life out of Jacob. And sometimes it scares Liz and she has to pry me away, but I just want to hold him so tight, I won't let anything happen to this kid. And when God said, out of Egypt I called my son, he said my son because that's the connection he makes with us. He says, you people, you are like a son to me. You're not just a a group of believers. You are like a son to me, each and every one of you are like a son, and I love you with the intensity of the heavens. So this image of a child is part, integral part of the journey that we're on. You know, it's like uh, when Jesus says, if anyone would enter the kingdom of God, he must have faith like a child. It continues on. Our hearts never really grow past the infancy of our faith. It's this constant need that we have. We're never meant to be done with it. It's a daily devotion. It's a constant growing, a day in and a day out. And here's a, here's a truth that I struggle with a lot. I don't know about you guys, but the fact that God knows our human condition. He knows that our heart beats both here and it beats in eternity. That it's both connected to this world in a very deep way and it's connected to Him. He knows our human condition. He knows how frail and fragile you are and how your heart wanders away. And He's okay with that. It says in Corinthians that He is patient. 
He is patient with us. He's patient with our hearts as we learn day in and day out this, this story, this journey. But uh, <clears throat> God still calls us out of Egypt, right? We still have this calling. We still have this massive thing that we have to go after. He still calls us out of Egypt. And the, the big thing is, is what, is, what is Egypt? How do you define it? How did the Jewish audience of Matthew's Gospel define it? And if we think about it, the all the emotion and the history and the memory of the people of God wrapped up into this out of Egypt thing. I mean, Egypt also occurs over 750 times in the Bible. Egypt played a major role in the story of God's people. I mean, what came to mind when they were thinking about Egypt? I know I don't know a whole lot of history, but I know that they were thinking about 400 years of slavery. I mean, that's over five generations, day in and day out, of being under oppression. That's like me looking back two generations, all the history I know in my family and going, they were all slaves. And looking at my son and saying, son, you and your children, they're going to be slaves. What other faith in the world survives that kind of oppression? I mean, praise God, right? That his, the faith that he implanted in his people could survive 400 years of slavery. That's such a beautiful thing. But this Egypt, you know, it, just remind yourself, this Egypt is deeper than the place. It's deeper than the 400 years of slavery. It's deeper even than the problem in Hosea's day of, of all the Israelites going back to worship the Baals, going back to make alliances with Egypt. The song the Israelites used to sing, some, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And then a day later, a month later, they would turn and go back to Egypt to make an alliance. We want our security here. They're just like us. Their story is the same as ours. Out of Egypt means out of the darkness of your heart. How do you think about this heart issue that you have, this heart issue that we have? How do you think about it in terms of others? In Colossians 1.13, it says that God delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In Ephesians 2, it says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I typically struggle with thinking about others in terms of what I see. I see the outward appearance. I say, that guy's mean. That guy's angry. That guy's a, a liar and a thief. God's looking at the heart. He's given us that same capacity to be able to look at someone, see the behavior, and go, that behavior means your heart is hurting. That behavior means your heart is struggling. That behavior means that you were dead, that you are dead. Don't you get it? That we were dead. We were a lifeless body laying on the ground. Hopeless, helpless, nothing. And He came and He rescued us. We were an enemy of the cross. When you look back at your salvation, do you think, I did some bad ideas in college, I made some bad choices, and then I met God and I changed my behavior. When you look back at your salvation, you should see, I was dead and now I'm alive. I was an enemy of the cross of Christ and now I'm an heir. 
I was lost and now I'm found. That's the, that's the God we celebrate. He's not the God who came in and made some behavior modifications. If you want that, go take Behavior Mod 101. I took it. It was a waste of time. Maslow's dogs will took up some electrodes and make them... I don't want that. Don't give me a God that electrocutes me when I make a bad behavior. No, he stepped in when I had nothing, and he saved my life. Thank you, hallelujah. See, that song, he, he came down into darkness. Man, it just blows my mind. And the, it's like... Uh, like, we just don't get it, you know? It's so hard to stay in that place where we really believe that we were dead and now we're alive. But when we, get, when we start to think in that manner, we start to not only believe it for ourselves, but we treat others that way. Because it, it's so true that the way we treat others is a reflection of our own heart, what we believe about ourselves. If I go about judging others' behaviors, it shows that that's what I'm doing myself. It shows that that's what I believe about my God. That He's the judgment of my of my behavior, and that's it. But if we go about loving others, you know, it's even in Hosea that he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire a man and a woman of God who looks and sees the heart. And people of God believe it. Ephesians 1 said, You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been blessed with the capacity to see like Christ sees. Claim it. Live in it. Love it. So we see, we see that we are on a journey with the man who saved us from, from death, that, that raised our dead bodies and, and made him alive. That's the man we worship, right? That's the man we're on this journey with. That's the man we we sing about here. We are also on a journey with each other. We're on a journey with other people who are alive in Christ, and we're on a journey with people who are dead. They're spiritually dead. And that reminds me of a, uh, of a mention in the beginning in my journey. One of the things I think about is being in the woods in the North Cascades. Um, we would go once a year out to the North Cascades and we we wanted we wanted to do things that were big, you know. We did Mount Rainier and we we made it, and that was fun. And we just decided, it's me and a couple of buddies of mine, we need to do something harder. We need something more challenging. So we went through and looked through the book, the guidebook, and we're looking for something more challenging. And lo and behold, there's a mountain called Mount Challenger. And so we go after that mountain, and we're just driving through the you know seven mile. I don't know how far it was. Driving forever to get to Mount Challenger. And I'm reading the guidebook in the back seat, and it's saying things like, Mount Challenger is one of the most difficult mountains in the world. Yes, it's a great idea. It is 17 miles from any road, so your chance of rescue is very slim. Awesome, let's do that one. Don't tell the wife. Don't call her right now. And it is so far out there, you have to go over mountains to get to it. You, you're a, your journey there is a journey over other mountains. So it's way out there. And we're like, yeah, that's the one we want to do. So we're going out there, and we decided we're going to do this, the light and fast model. I don't know, are there any mountaineers here? I'm the only one? Great, I'm speaking. You know, it's good. The light and fast model of mountaineering means that you take as little as possible, and you go as fast as possible, and you don't stop. You sleep maybe two hours, and you just go, and you go nuts, like my son. 
And so we're, I mean, we literally jogged down the trail with 30 pounds on our back with minimal fuel, food, and water. And we're going after it. And we went 15 miles on the first day, slept for two hours in the middle of the day, and then went over this one mountain that's this scree-covered mound of nothingness. Scree is like these little pebbles that when you step on them, it's like you're sliding down a, like a knee-deep snow, except it's rolling, and every step you make, you slide a foot down. So scree's a bad idea. You don't want to walk on it. But to get over to Challenger, we had to go up this one mountain. It's just covered in scree, and you can't rope up. You can't put a rope on between you and your partner, because if he falls, you fall. So you just go slow, and you go careful, and you, you panic the entire way up. And we get over this mountain to the other side, and we see Challenger there. And it didn't look that big. But it was the journey getting there that was big. It was the journey getting to it. So we slept that night. I think we got to camp about 10. And you wake up real early when you do summit day. So we get up at 2 a.m. the next morning, and we go. And you put your lights on, and you just start hiking. And to cross a, a glacier up there, you've got to go through a maze of crevasses. Everybody knows a crevasse. You know, it's hundreds of feet deep. You can't see the bottom. And it was a maze. It was the most segmented glacier I had ever seen. And there were parts where we, we, would, we were roped up on the glacier, and there were parts where you belay your guy across because the ice bridge might fall. And so it's just this epic journey that we were on. And we get up to the about 100 vertical feet from the top, and there's this thing called the Bergschrund, where the, the snow cap on the mountain separates from the glacier that's forming. And late in the season, the snow bridges that, that cross it disappear. And so we were stopped. And there was this giant gap 30 feet across, and we couldn't see the bottom, so we couldn't go. So we didn't make it. It's a challenger. And so with this defeat in our minds, we head back, 17 miles back to camp. We have to get on a plane the next morning, so we can't stop to rest. we got to go from not making it to the challenger all the way back to the parking lot 17, 18 miles away. And it's a, it's a trail that goes over 30 like 30,000 feet of elevation change up and down. So it's not just like we're going straight down. It's like up and down and up and down, up and down and up and down. And here's what happens. You always hope, as a weird person like me, that you'll run into a situation that you can't get out of so that you can prove yourself. But you never know when it's going to happen. And it happened on this trip. We ascended down halfway down this, this valley. And we were stuck at a, at a spot where you have to find what Fred Becky, the best climber in the world, by the way, said is called the imperfect impasse. I don't know why you would name a pass imperfect and that it's impassable, if that's what impasse means in French. Anybody know? But he named it the imperfect impasse. It's this little less than a foot wide ledge that wraps around the cliff that's over 200 feet wide and it's hanging 100 feet above a raging glacial river. And you've got to find this one little pass to get over to your trail. There's other options. You could go 20 miles back the other way and go bushwhacking. That means you've got to go over two more mountains, down three more scree mountains. It's a bad idea. You could descend further in the valley and try to cross the river and get frozen to death. It's a bad idea. The best option is this imperfect impasse. So we searched for two hours. We couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. It wasn't there. And we started going nuts. Each in our turn, we started to lose our mind. My partners, we're not going to make it. I mean, we're out of fuel. We're out of food. Our plane leaves the next day. 
and we're really, really tired, and we didn't make it to the top of Challenger. But in front of us is this gully, like about 70 degrees, full of more scree. Everywhere you go is volcanic scree, just crumbling. And we see that as the best option. So we start up it, and we're still, we're all losing it. I mean, there's a point at which I stopped, and I was just like, I can't go any further. I'm not going to see Liz again. We're not going to make it out of here. And my partner came over to me, and he grabbed me by the coat, and he said, Eric, you are not going to die. And I'm not being dramatic. I really, we really thought there was the possibility of death. He said, you are going to make it. I will not leave you. I will be with you. That's the picture. I said that 20-minute story to show you the picture, that we're on this journey with each other. Over mountains, up and down elevation change, it's constant, it's day in, it's day out, it's difficult, it's cold, it's wet. Are you in it with others? Are you embracing other people on this journey? When they're stuck on some gully of a life, it's crumbling in front of them. Do you embrace them as a brother and a sister and do you say, I'm not going to leave you, I've got you. I feel that from you guys. I know that y'all do. In our small group, that's what we do. We embrace one another, and it's life. It is, it is beautiful. Praise God for that. As it, as it turns out, we did, we did make it, obviously. I'm here. We got, up to the, we got up to the top of that scree gully, and there was an anchor. This is beautiful. There was an anchor fixed in some rocks over near the edge. And while I'm sitting over on a rock over here, nearly crying, I didn't say that out loud, about the possibilities. My partner's looking for stuff, a way to get down. We had put ourselves in a far worse position than we were before. It was like you're on top of a pinnacle and there's no way to get down because to find an anchor on a crumbling volcano is really difficult. But we find this one anchor and it was like grace. It was like, hey, you got yourself really stuck here and I've given you this right here. And it was our, our free ticket, our free ascent, right, out of there. And we were back on the trail home. just want to encourage all of us, admonish each other to live lives that are worthy of the grace of God, to live lives that see compassion in one another, that look towards the heart, that don't look towards the outward appearance that the rest of the world sees. Let us shake the scales off our hearts and continue to, to worship God from our heart, to realize that He's connecting with us there on a deep, personal level. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank You for the opportunity to speak Your Word. God, thank You that we were dead and now we're alive. Thank You that You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that when you return, everyone will know your name. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. God, thank you that we're on a journey with that kind of a God, not the one that we come up with. God, just continue to open our eyes and our hearts to that reality. In your holy name we pray, amen.